Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Jordan Jarvis, and I am bubbling with excitement early on a Wednesday morning because I am talking with Roshni Kavate. Thank you so much for being here. I woke up this morning just like raring to go. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, this is great. I didn't ask you, so where, where are you? Where are you physically right now? I'm in Barcelona right now in my art studio, but I'm usually in the Bay Area in the same Oh my gosh. Wow. Even more generous to give us time from Barcelona. Now our listeners are not going to know it, but the part of the reason I asked is it looks like a very cool space that you're in. So I'm going to want to hear more about why you're in Barcelona and why you're in an art studio, but let me read people your bio because you have done some really exciting work. You're an artist, a grief nourisher, an alchemist, and an activist. You're the founder and creative director of Cardamom and Cavate, a cultural wellness platform dedicated to reclaiming nourishing practices rooted in ancestral wisdom for collective liberation. It says that you believe that grief is a portal to wholeness through rituals and storytelling. We can connect, reconnect to our origins and be our wild selves. You see the path to being whole as a radical art and political practice. And the question that guides you is what is our grief craving? God, I love that word. And how can we nourish it and feed it? People can go on to the website that will link and read all of your credentials, which are pretty, they're pretty varied and intimidating, but they include doing care work as a doula and as a transplant nurse. Your experience is so wide and varied, and it also looks like you have been all over the place, including New York City. So I'd encourage people to go and read more about you, but tell us, maybe even just start, you're in Barcelona right now. Mm -hmm. Are you doing the art part of your world at this moment? Yeah, I got a summer art residency. So I'm working on actually food, culture, grief stories. So I'm in my studio making, working on a zine on like mango and okra, you know, just things that remind me of comfort, home, joy, loss, memories, all of it. So it's, it's so special that we're talking, you know, at my desk right yeah, now. Yeah, I feel really lucky. So, so how long will the residency be? How long will you be in this? Uh, the residency ends in a week. Yeah. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. And how long has it been? Have you been there a while or? I live between Barcelona and California. So oh, yeah, amazing. That's mm-hmm. cool. I'll be home soon. Okay. Or to my parents, seeing my parents and eating home-cooked food. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Will you just take our listeners into sort of maybe start with how have, where do you come into the story of grief and loss? How did you find yourself in this work? And I imagine that's going to be a complicated answer, but I'm dying to hear it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was very, like, very bright-eyed when I was young. My grandfather was a community village doctor. You know, people would bring him, like, chickens or rice or, you know, whatever they grew. Yeah. They would come, you know, like, two hours away, three hours away, and he would just care for them from, like, a little room in our house where he lived. So he was really this, like, community doctor, community presence. And I think that really influenced how I saw my role in life. And I really wanted to, you know, care and change people's lives and be there for them from a very young age. So 
when I went to college, I studied nutrition and then I thought, you know, I want to go into nursing. And that's when I went to NYU for nursing school. And again, very, you know, I've had a very sort of like idealistic bone. <laughs> and so I went to LA and I was working in the transplant unit there. And it was very interesting. You think transplant is all about, you know, a chance at a second life, rebirth, transformation. And it was, but it was interesting at the same time we were seeing so many people die you know, that's just the cost of, you know, going through a transplant or people who are waiting for a transplant die. So I was just experiencing so much grief and loss and trauma. You know, you're a trauma therapist. So at 22, you know, I'm experiencing all the secondhand trauma without knowing where to channel that, like how, how to process, digest that all in my body. And it really changed my sense of how how medically we treat you know death and dying in the hospitals and it's not you know there's no holistic sort of lens of death and dying it's very you know pathological medicalized and it's seen as such a failure right and i really carried that and so did all my colleagues and that really shaped you know, I, and I wanted to get us far away from that kind of death and dying experience. And, mm. and I quit that job. I mean, it was very traumatic for me too. So I kind of went on this journey and went back to India to where I'd grown up and, you know, really had to put myself back together, my body, my spirit, all of it, that experience just broke me. And when I came back, I got into home health and palliative care. And that's where I saw the other side of grief. Absolutely. Death and Absolutely. Yeah. I want to open that up. And I want to, I want to ask you this question because I get asked this question a lot. So I, one of the things I do is sort of like try to help little baby therapists who are coming out into the world. And one question that I, and I've been doing this 20 years, so the question is more slightly, but, but I, one thing that I get asked a lot is what, what do you do? What skills do you have? What tools have you been taught to process through the secondary trauma. And so by secondary trauma, we mean the trauma hasn't happened to me, but I am, I'm adjacent, I'm in the world of the trauma. So I'm curious because it feels to me like what you're saying was you were a giant sponge. When you were, when you were in nursing, were there tools, were there skills, were there classes? No, you're shaking. No, yeah. no. I mean, Isn't amazing. Isn't that no. amazing? Because that's, Baby therapists ask me the question and I'm like, I know you want me to tell you. And I've heard other therapists say, well, you know, we're taught. We're not taught. We're not taught. I've never been taught. Now I do a lot of my own therapy that I pay for out of my pocket, but you're actually not taught. And in the same way that you're, I think maybe going to describe to us the same way we're not taught all the possible ways in which grieving can get the energy out of your body. We are not taught right? We're not taught how to move that trauma. We just absorb it. And maybe, I don't know, start drinking or go home and fighting with our partner, but we're actually not taught. So what did you, oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was exactly going to say everybody just drank a lot at my work. Right, I know. Like binge drinking and gambling was like number one, <laughs> you know, like partying so in Vegas. That was, that was self-care. Right. So it's so crazy, right? Because it's this like traumatic cycle where we're just handing the cold teacup to the next person. 
Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like we, I worked in an emergency room at children's hospital for eight months here in DC. And I happened to be in really good somatic therapy at the time, but I saw children die when, I mean, and again, I was 22 years old. I'd never be able to do that work now knowing what it does to my system, but nobody ever offered me anything. I mean, they required for my licensing that I get some training, but that training was like ethics, you know, make sure that I don't do something wrong. There wasn't any, and it's just a really fascinating, I always wonder like, is that how everybody does it? I have people in the UK and I think that actually there is a little bit of a difference because it's a public health care system. I think they are maybe a little bit more savvy about not burning out their, you know, their kind of first responders. So tell me about what the difference felt like when you began to explore palliative care and maybe even define palliative care for those folks who don't know what that would. What yeah, that. palliative care is just a very, you know, different approach to, I mean, it's an integrated part of medical care, but approach is really, you know, supporting people where they're at. It's honoring, you know, the comfort you know, not being in pain, you know, helping them live as well as possible and whatever that means, right? It's very personal. It There's a lot of storytelling. We ask, you know, what does a good life mean to you? What does a good day mean to you? What brings meaning? So it's less about, you know, what are your labs looking at, looking like, and, you know, how's the treatment? I mean, how is the treatment changing and evolving? but it's really focusing to me it has a very mindful quality to it because it's talking about the present but also thinking about the future you know but not obsessing over you know everything that's out there but it's really how are you in this moment and how can Mm -hmm. we support you you know be your truest alivest self even as you're dying to me that's you know that's inspiring to have conversations around that well it sounds it sounds both really honoring of the actual experience of the human in front of you. So instead of sort of like, what can I tell you about yourself based on the blood that I took from your body? It sounds more about honoring the human spirit. I'm curious when you're in that work, are there things that you are discovering about the process of folks who are coming to palliative care, which I love the way that you described it, which is really just sort of supporting where they are in their life. Are there things that you are learning at that or hearing that are sort of universal? No, I'll tell you what, you know, when you ask people, like, what are you hoping for? You know, some people are like, what do you mean? Like, I don't want to die. You know, that's one of the first things, obviously. But then like we would ask them, like, what, you know, what brings you joy or like, what is life worth living for? And you'd be surprised over and over. The answer is, I really want to eat this mango you know, in the Philippines. Like, I just want to eat those potato chips again. I just want to make it to Thanksgiving. You know, it's like just being home, having that family meal again. That's it. Like, that is it. Tell me why you think that is. I have some ideas, but it is so fascinating to me that you are describing food as being at the root of the visceral experience that people pull up. But tell me, what's your thought about that? Why are people talking about mangoes from home? I think, you know, like when you are going through treatment, when you're really thinking about your mortality and like death is sort of every day in your face, there's still hope at that point is, you know, very like small things, right? Like hope is not this big news of like, oh, your cancer went away. Hope is, oh, I can eat this mango and taste it and not be in pain. 
you know, hope is I can just be around the table and like things are just back like where they were. Hope is another holiday that I can mark with my family. So the chance at the simple pleasure becomes this, you know, triumph over whatever sadness or loss that is impending. So to me, you know, something so small is like this infinite source of joy, I think. It's also very present moment, right? I mean, I think one of the things, particularly if people have had long-term illness, that they're long-term illness that has a, you know, a, everyone's terminal, right? But but they have some acknowledgement that like, you know, maybe there's months or years. I think there's something about eating a mango in this moment, which is just about this moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that there's a lot, you know, we can do breath work and we can do yoga and we can do, but when you're ill, it's not simple. It's not easy to, to connect into that. When my dad was dying, I hadn't thought about this. I haven't told this story on the podcast. When my dad was dying, his, he was, we were in Massachusetts and Massachusetts did not have like a hospice option as a facility. You could have hospice nurse, nurses into your home, mm-hmm. but he went to a rehab facility, which had this confusing dynamic of like, we knew he was progressively dying from his cancer, but other people were there to get well. So it had this very odd sort of vibe to it, but it was about a quarter of a mile from the ice cream place that we went to as children. So when that place opened, I mean, it's like famous when it opened, we brought him a little kid's cup. I mean, he didn't eat much, which is one of the side effects of cancer for a lot of people is they lose their appetite but we brought him a tiny little cup of cantaloupe ice cream every day. He would say, this is the best part of my day, right? Like it was this hearkening back to things that we did when he was much younger and healthier. And it was always a treat for us to like pile. I have five brothers and sisters, pile all the kids in the car and go get this ice cream. Mm. And the cantaloupe is very specific. Like it's not a flavor that everybody makes. It tastes just like cantaloupe. And it was it still threads through, like it's a member from, it's a memory from childhood. It's a memory of my dad's death. It's a thing that, you know, if I'm near the ice cream shop, I will always get cantaloupe ice cream, even though it wasn't the flavor, but it's just interesting to hear you say it because it was one of the few things that he was concretely able to say that, that actually he wanted. Most of the other, most of the other moments were like, he didn't really care. You know, he, he was pretty depressed. He was pretty sick. But he would say, are, are you going to go out and get ice cream? <laughs> it's like, yeah. don't worry, dad, I'm getting you the ice cream. And it's so lovely to hear you talk about, you know, it was like all your siblings and your dad. And it probably made him, you know, feel like if he was like 30 again, you know, like a young father with all his yeah. little kids. Yeah, because right, it was so viscerally connected to you know, pleasure, right? Like something that was pleasurable for everyone and the people that mattered to him and, you know, maybe some people who weren't around. Have you seen, someone sent me the TikTok and I'm going to get all the details wrong, but have you seen this, this TikTok where it's a grandmother? It's, it's from, I think it was posted on the happiness movement, but Mm -hmm. the grandmother is opening a bag of fruit and they look like grapes. I don't know what it is. Cause I actually always watch TikTok without the volume on. <laughs> and then she just breaks into the smile and then gets really emotional because her granddaughter noticed she wasn't feeling well or, you know, emotionally 
and brought her this fruit from wherever she was from. And mm. oh, you think I think they were lychees, maybe or they I, might I, be lychees. They might yeah. be. I, I don't. I never have the volume on. I'm always looking at it. Yeah. But it made me cry. It made me cry because it's so little, and it you can see that it's transporting her to mm-hmm. a time and place that is valuable and you know feels different than the overall moment maybe or what we do which is we project into the future a little bit right like absolutely yeah I mean these memories like take us back you know it's it's like you're remembering just like even people you haven't met in your family line and then you have these dreams for the future so I think these foods connect us to you know just our entire almost lineage like sort of back and forth and that's such a special way to keep that memory of us like going and keeping it alive and celebrating it. It's also just a great way to get someone's story, right? To ask them about the foods that were special to them and what did they eat? What were their holidays? What were their celebrations? Can you tell me, so when you're not doing your art at a fellowship, like what does what does your typical work look like? I want to know more about how you're when you are focusing on the story collection. I want to know more about what that looks like, maybe for your clients or patients, but also what that ends up, how that ends up infusing the rest of all of the things that you are working on. Yeah. I mean, lately I've been doing a lot of, you know, just documenting and writing recipes down. You know, I think so many of our cultures are like oral traditions, so we don't write down anything you know at least in my family we don't have any cookbooks we don't have any books you know i'm always sad when i when i used to work with people in my palliative care practice you know they would bring me like sometimes like their autobiography that they wrote or like their grandkid made a movie about their life and there's something so tangible that they can hold on to and I've been feeling more and more, especially during the pandemic, it just felt, you know, it, it felt like life so ephemeral and that I may not have the memory or the reminders of the taste of even things my mom makes every day. You know, I just sort of take it for granted. And the idea that like, I may never have the taste of that spice blend or the masala ever again. I've been really documenting, you know, and talking to a lot of people in my family too. It's like, what'd you eat for breakfast? What'd you do for this holiday? Like, you know, what did you do during the independence? Like what happened then? What were the stories? There's so much history bound up in these recipes as well. Well, and the spicier and the more complicated the food the the more that is possible, right? Like I grew up with Irish cooks who added salt and pepper to, you know, steamed <laughs> and overcooked vegetables. But when you're describing, maybe your family has its own, you know, at least this is what I have experienced, bags of this is what we put on the chicken. Right. It's like yeah. nobody even knows what's in that bag. Exactly. Like I can't go to the store to get that. Exactly. Right. Like our grandmother sat and made 30 of these bags. And so when, when I was studying at Oxford, a friend went to the mailbox and came back and was like, smell this box. And I was like, (laughs) what is in here? And he was Sri Lankan and his family had sent little pouches, little like spices. And I mean, it's one of my most visceral memories is what the kitchen smelled like for like 10 days afterwards. 
Um, mm-hmm. But also the the just like real emotional experience of both joy and I think real homesickness for him around what it was like to be in the, you know, the tastes of his family. Mm-hmm. So I can appreciate what you're saying, which is since history is bound up in these experiences and we hold our emotional experiences with our five senses. Absolutely. Right. And taste and, and also the sound and the being and all of that with the family, we do want to be able to tattoo that in somehow. Yeah. I think, you know, when people talk about grief or joy, they talk about it as such like the cerebral, you know, mental health concept, but you experience your emotions, your day-to-day life through your senses, right? You know, we see that with our pets, you know, our dogs, like they're very driven by their senses, but we are sensorial central human beings and not in some sort of you know sexual kind of way that's one part of it but every morning you know you look at the sun that makes you feel good right Right. like you feel the touch of your partner or a parent like that makes you feel reassured you smell coffee or chai in the morning you go oh like you know my day is starting so beautifully and you have you know, a sip of your favorite wine or a mango and you go, oh, like this reminds me of, you know, everything that's wonderful about life. So we live life every moment through our senses. So the idea that grief is not a sensual thing to me doesn't make sense. You know, the way we experience grief is through our entire central body and how we move through it, you know, bring movement into it and navigate it. It's also through our senses. Yeah. I mean, so you're talking my language because I come in from the world of trauma, which often people think of as like, oh, you, you know, you were in a hurricane or you were mugged at gunpoint, which is, you know, partly, partly the work that I do. Actually, the bulk of the work that I do is people had hard things in childhood that sort of the energy got stuck inside of them. And then they interpret the world based on those ways that the energy gets stuck. And in trauma work, a lot of what we're doing is just getting that energy unstuck so that you you have other possibilities to sort of think and feel. When I'm talking to people about their grief story, which, which for people who haven't had a real traumatic loss, it's similar to having a baby or it's similar to, you know, being in a storm. Your body has this physical sensation to the threat and it the, the sensation begets all of these other things. And so one thing that will happen in grief when your body is roiling in these is like food will taste different. Your, Mm -hmm. your sense of wanting to even eat anything shifts. People only want this because it tastes good, you know, and it never did before, or they can't eat the food that they used to find pleasurable. But in trauma work, we're always looking to find something that grounds people back to a sense of safety. Yeah. And so while I don't usually use food in my practice, I know people who do, which is just being able to get you back into you're okay in this moment, because really trauma is something that happened to you in the past and you've already lived through it. So even though your body is sending all these messages, and I feel like with grief and loss, part of the trauma is the longing. I want to be able to go back. Mm -hmm. my grandmother's kitchen. And I think at least in Western culture, we're guided to not do that. No. And what you and I are trying to teach people is that is human and okay. And actually safe. It's okay. Safe to long. 
for your grandma. Yeah, I mean, the longing is giving you clues, right, to what you yeah. want. Yeah, and maybe asking that longing, like, what is it that you're craving? That What is it that you're needing? How is your body wanting to be held? Yeah. And you're so right, especially, you know, with illness or grief, there's, we have such a culture of sort of, you know, I, you know, the hero's journey of like, you know, I came out of it and now I'm like, overcome and, I and all of it. It's like, no, that was never the point, you know, like we don't need to kind of this, have this assertive power on our bodies. We just yeah. want to be in conversation with them. Well, and it's really oppressive, right? That hero's journey. And I've many people who I'll ask them, do they feel changed after a loss? Because, you know, we are, there was a before and there's an after and our after might even be better or might be worse, mm -hmm. but are you changed? And people always feel the need to tell me like, well, I didn't start a foundation or, you know, I did, I, that's, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is across the trajectory of your life. Where, where, where does the grief sort of land and what is it that it has shown you about yourself? And you use this language, which I love. And I, I, it really is like provocative and made me think, what is your grief craving? That sentence is so generous. It is such a generous approach and a healthy way of saying to people, it is not a problem. Grief is not a problem. It just is. And if you can get a sense of what would be good for you, one thing in trauma work that I do is I say to people, don't make any decisions more than three hours out. Mm. And they'll say, why? And I'm like, well, there's a little bit of neuroscience, but mostly it's just my experience is when you are in early stages of grief, your emotions are moving through you so quickly because your brain is trying to understand the world and it can't, that when I say to you, yeah, let's have lunch and, you know, or I'll come to your house for dinner by lunchtime, that's no longer possible for me. Right. I had this like emotional superhighway, mm. and I can't do it anymore. So I'm so curious when you ask that question to people, are they mostly, are we talking about five senses when you say, what are you craving? What have you seen that has either surprised you or, you know, is it, it's the common answer? I think most people just want ease. I think they want things to be simpler, you know, not that they don't want to feel their grief, but they want life to be simpler. They want to, you know, sort of like cocoon for, you know, take six months to like really be with their grief, be home and not have to go back to work, you know, after five days after losing their parent. you know, our society, is not made for grieving or living in a way, right? Like so it's brutal. It's so brutal. brutal place to be. And what people are really asking is like, I just want to go burrow in my little nest and come out when I'm ready. And what, what I find so interesting also, so I love that. I love that idea that people want ease, right? Because when you love someone and you see them going through something really hard, that's all you want for them too. Right. Now, it doesn't mean that the fact that there wasn't ease couldn't ultimately be a good thing, but in the moment it's, you know, what I want is for this to be less awful mm. and terrible. And I have, what I have also discovered is that when people are grieving, particularly in early grief, they don't, because it's new and they, even if they've grieved before, they've never grieved this loss before they don't always have the best estimates of what it is that they actually are going to find helpful. Right. 
Yeah. Well, everybody's sending articles and books and telling them, you know, go to this yoga thing, do this meditation thing, go to this therapist. I found you a group and, you know, like helpful, but not really. Right. And, and the way you're describing it is sort of, you know, okay, so what does your ease mean? Right. So you want, you would like ease, not, oh, my friend Linda said that this magazine article was helpful, but like, what is your instinct? Right. That's, that's constantly what I'm saying to people. And I do have this big card that I made. That's like a menu of things. And I'm like, listen, if you really have no idea, which I believe is possible because the body really takes a hit, let me show you a card of like hundreds of other things that grievers have told me they have experienced and it's better than the moment that they're in. And it has been helpful And it'll be everything from like playing the violin, gardening, you know, taking a trip, going to sleep, drinking, dancing, everything's on there. And so then what I say is just stop when you see one that feels interesting. Like you have a little ping of energy and people will Mm -hmm. say like, oh, I did used to love to draw. Like, okay, well maybe drawing is gonna ease some of this hard energy out of your body. What do you find from people when they are pursuing ease? When you're having that conversation, do they come up only with the wall of like, well, I wish I could go home, but I can't get the time off? Actually, really, they just want to be able to say no. You know, like saying no while you're grieving is so hard. It's, it's, I mean, we just have a problem of saying no in our culture, right? Like that's just not seen as like something like as self-care or as like taking, you know, having strong boundaries or celebratory for yourself. Like people just want to say, you know what? Like, no, for the whole year, I'll see you later. (laughs) What I told people after my mom died was assume it's a no, but keep asking me anyway. Yeah. Popped in, like keep asking, assume everything is a no, because I just didn't have the energy or the wherewithal, but mostly the desire to be with people. I didn't want to do any of that, except like for the 10 minutes that I did. And so I just wanted people to keep asking me because it felt so loving to be asked and to forgive me when I was like, no, actually, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to. And so I'm interested sort of like, you know, my, my experience says that there's a big cultural difference between who gets to say no and who, right. right? Yeah. And no doesn't mean you're closing off to opportunities, right? No means you're opening up to more of the things you want for yourself Mm -hmm. that feel easeful to you, that feel safe to you. So it's actually coming home to more of yourself. I think no allows for your presence to take over take over, take, take more space, if anything. I'm assuming that that is a new concept to some of the people you're working with, that the idea of a no is not a bad thing that they're doing that. I mean, I'm teaching my mom. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, what are boundaries? I'm like, okay, mom, lesson one, here we go. (laughs) Hey, when our, when our work can come home and have benefits at home, I, I know. And I think particularly for women, boundaries are really hard. And, you know, part of what happens, I think in grief, you can tell me if you see something different is that, you know, part of the caretaking that women in particular would normally offer out into the world, they have to keep for themselves. I mean, yeah, that's how we survive and make it through. You know, we, I think most people, I think most caregivers, most parents, especially 
mothers and birthing parents or primary caregivers are running on empty, right? Like you don't meet any mother who's like, oh, I'm so well rested today, right? They are on the verge of some kind of breakdown. (laughs) And so we're operating culturally. So like half our population is, you know, one step away from a sense of, you know, feeling burnt out, feeling lost, like losing it all. And, and that's not just people who are, you know, poor, like that's everyone, right? And that's a problem that even when people are so resourced, they're having problem. Imagine how people without resources are surviving. So it's interesting because we're such a judgmental con- country at, at, you know, I think Western side of the medicine, you know, we have a lot of things where like your BMI is too high and you shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, you, you're not getting enough sleep and you should be eating vegetables. We have a lot of judgment, but there is this weird, perverse, like valiant component of like, mm. oh, I only got two, you know, I was on double shift last night. I only got two hours of sleep, like yeah. 30 people to pick up in my carpool. Oh, and like I, nurses are the champions. And that's you know, what I was going to say, right? <laughs> right. It's this competitive exhaustion and this concept. And I think maybe what we've been trying to cure it with is almost like a band-aid that causes its own infection. You know, we, what we send out there into the world instead of core, you know, how do you get into your body to heal your body and hear your body and be in tandem with your body? We're like, you know, a little quip in Oprah magazine. That's like, you know, ginger tea can be a <laughs> zinger for you in the afternoon or like, and, and I think what happens is people then have this like weird secondary shame that they're exhausted from their jobs that expect them to pull double shifts. And they are, not doing enough self-care, self-care in quotes, right, quotes. To, to like compensate. And therefore they're failing at grieving or their mental health because they still feel terrible. Oh my gosh. It, failing at grief. It's such a thing in all the people I work with and talk to. Is that what you see as well? All like, the time. People wanting yeah. to grief. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I'm really so interested in the way that you talk about the collecting the narrative and the story because it's really, it's so person-centered. What I do, in, which is so important, being able to sort of tell your own story in your own way is so important and individual. But a lot of what I do with people is I'm like, yeah, that's totally and 100% normal. And, and so my soapbox is a bit about like, why doesn't everybody already know that your memory has issues, that you are exhausted, that your relationship to food is not the same. All of that is just normal. And so what I find is people come in and generally when people find me, cause it's, I specialize and it's not inexpensive to come see me. When they find me, they have already been really suffering for probably more than a year. I I would hazard to guess. I haven't gone and done real data mining on this, but I would say it's more than a year. And people are like, Megan, you know, I feel really terrible, but I had this like awful thought when my dad died and I'm really, I feel really guilty. And, And in one session I can say like, oh, let me explain to you what was going on inside your brain that's right. these crazy thoughts. It's not your fault. It happens to but it's the most natural thing that you would it's think. It's the most natural thing. Yeah. So I do, I do find that there is a lot of shame around how people think they are supposed to grieve that is based on the fact that no one told them what grief is really like. 
I mean, when you get three days and you have to be back at work, you know, that's not a lot of time. Yeah. And, and culturally speaking as well, you know, there's a lot of, you know, even friends or coworkers or family will just stop talking to you. You know, they'll stop asking. And I think people want to be asked, oh, like, how are you, you know, instead of maybe sort of like, how are you feeling today? You know, most people are going eh, like terrible to like bad, right? Maybe a good yeah. day. But like maybe ask them like you know what memories are coming up today are you like marking you know some celebration today was it you know some special memory that came up you know i think everybody wants to like talk about their loved one and i think yeah. all the trauma and the grief is there's no socially it's not acceptable anymore to talk these about are, how hard it is. i think is important and i don't hear it talked about a lot is the idea that we are all the like leading man and woman in our own or you know across the gender spectrums of our own movie right so it's not that i don't love and care about you it's that the tragedy happened to you and so all day long what you are navigating is tragedy and i am not navig i will and i have but I have to pick my kid up and get them to the dentist. Right. That's, what my, that's what my day is. And so what I think happens in our self-centeredness of grief, and I, and I don't mean that in a judgmental word, I mean centered in the self. In yeah, the, well, yeah. Is that it is hard, it is so isolating, so overwhelming. It is like a, insulting and hard to believe that other that the earth is tilting on its axis the way it always did. And that people are running to Starbucks to get coffee. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that they're doing at you, but it is something that's happening. And then we do the thing, which is the translation of like, well, then everyone thinks I should be over this. And everyone thinks, but I swear to God, if we just had more conversation, right? people would say, I mean, I was having a casual conversation a little bit on my soapbox talking about how much this mattered. And a woman I didn't know at all said, actually... It's the seventh anniversary of my best friend's death today. Mm. And I was like, thank you for saying, how is it? And she was like, it's awful. This one's worse than it was before. Like right. this is the worst one it's been in years and I can't figure out why. And I was like, wow, I'm really glad you told me and I'm very sorry. What are you doing to be with your grief? But if I hadn't already been like, well, I'm a grief expert and I talk about grief all, all day long. <laughs> I said, have you spoken to anybody else about this? And she said, well, just her six, you know, just my best friend's sister. And we just texted this morning, but it clearly wasn't enough. It, she needed no. more. And so yeah, and most this, people want to, want to tell it. Like they want, they want to speak. They want to be witnessed. You know, they just want to be acknowledged. Like what they're holding is too much for them. And, you know, nobody wants to be rescued, but just like, you acknowledging, right? Like, wow, that's hard. Like, what are you doing about it? Right? Like they want to know. Right. And that's not any different than if something excited, exciting. Exactly. Right. If there's someone got engaged or married, you're like, oh, so what are you doing? What's the planning? Like, you know, you ask questions. I think curiosities was missing around grief. Like, I agree. Yeah. I think I we agree. all just want more curiosity. And the difficulty when you're the griever is that you're brain is not actually on curiosity is not really online the part of your brain that allows us to be curious and thoughtful and creative and innovative is actually sort of shut down because you're in the trauma space 
so what I say to folks, you know, when we're talking about this concept of becoming more grief informed is like, listen to a podcast now, have a conversation with someone that, you know, has grieved now, even though they're not grieving, they're not in present grieving energy, ask them about it now so that they can tell you one question I love to send people out into the world with is go to someone that, you know, experienced a loss and ask them what was the most significant and important thing someone did for them. Mm. What is, it's sort of like the question about food, right? Like what did, what, and I have a whole bunch of these questions on my website, but it's just like, what has someone done that was surprisingly helpful? And what's always interesting about that question is sometimes that comes from someone that they didn't expect. This person came in and did this thing. And like, I never would have thought to ask, and it's not what my family or my culture would have done, but God, it really helped me. And just those questions, right? Like what food did you used to eat at at the holidays with your family is right away going to get you in the energy of talking about people who aren't here anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's this way of sort of being with grief without being overwhelmed by grief. Cause when we're overwhelmed, it's hard to do anything. I mean, I was angry all the time, you know, everything everyone tried to do for me wasn't enough. And I, I, anger was important to me because it was better than freezing and collapsing. Yeah. And there's also a level of sort of like going inward or like self-isolation, you know, which heightens those differences. Like I like to describe that when you're grieving, like things are either too hot or too cold. Like your all your senses are either heightened or they're really dampened. Yeah. You know? So like your digestion's really off, your energy's really down, right. but your emotions, right? Like you may be feeling more angry, just like, but then your brain can't also, you know, it's also kind of foggy and not able to focus and function. So it's very interesting. You are kind of at both extremes. That's exactly right. That's a great way of describing it. I want and your body obviously can't find its balance in between that like extreme, right? Right. And, and so part of what we do in trauma work is we give people things that help balance. And a lot of them, actually, a lot of the ones that I use come more from Eastern philosophies and energy work about, you know, things like cranial sacral massage and EMDR and things that allow us to stimulate our body, right? Like tapping, hugging, things that will allow the body to have the same level of stimulus on the, on the left and the right. And then it can even us out. Now we have to do a lot of that in early grief work where everything is, again, there's a great, a beautiful book called the grieving brain, which talks to us about how the brain and the body, you may know it, how the brain and the body are, you know, they're working really hard to understand the world now as a totally different place. And at some point it will be less hard. And I always think about it as like driving when I was an early driver and I couldn't have the radio on and no one could talk to me. And I was like, you know, my hands were at 10 and two and I was really concentrating and I don't drive like that anymore because my, my whole physical system understands what driving is and what it means and how to do it. And I think there are some aspects of grief that are a little bit the same. I, you know, it doesn't matter how long you're grieving, you're still going to be brought back into that visceral sense of loss multiple times a year, maybe multiple times a day, depending on where you're at. I want to ask you the question about sort of like, how do people find you in the, in the world? Because it looks to me like you're doing work 
that you offer out. It's not like they find you at a hospital. So how do people come into your, do they find you online? Are you giving lectures and talks? Is it, you know, whispery by word of mouth? How, how is, how are, how are you out there for people to come into contact with? Yeah, lately my practice has been changing quite a bit. I think just based on what people are needing and that's good. Like people are really wanting to engage with their grief. And so it's exciting for me, you know, to really serve people in sort of the ways that I've been like dreaming about, but they never, you know, people are just like, ah, like that's too creative or that's too out there. But now they're like, oh, I'm ready. So, you know, it's an exciting time, I think for people you know, navigating and also serving people who are needing this grief support. So I'm starting to like offer, you know, very simple ways of people, you know, how they can bring these practices into their life. Like I'll be leading a workshop soon in the fall. We'll be doing some journaling, you know, every day. And then I'll be sending you recipes and we'll cook together every two weeks. So it's about, you know, how to connect to your grief. You know, it's called Feed My Grief. So, oh my God. Yeah. You know, it's like well, soulful and nurturing and, you know, we don't have to make big changes in our life. We just have to like get curious and start having a conversation with our grief. So that's just one of the programs I'm working on a cookbook and, you know, coaching one-on-one. So it's sort of all coming together. So I feel like we're, we're talking at a very you know, auspicious time. Yes. Yeah. Well, and listen, it's filling a need, right? Like that part of the reason I like to have these conversations is the thing that I know that is the most true is that people, people have a wide variety of needs. Like, you know, I'm in the middle of writing a memoir. I write, I, I read memoir. I love grief and loss stories. I think everyone who has one should write it down and offer it, but I throw as many books across the room as I do read because you know, it's not all for me. It's not all about me. It's not all going to land with me. And that is how I feel about grief and loss, which is, you know, I know people that play the violin and that is their grief expression. That is their, that is the moving of the energy. That is, it worked when they were a child. They're doing it now. I know people who garden. I know people who exercise. I know people who draw. I know people who you know, go to soup kitchens and, or, or drive people to treatment facilities. There's no right way to grieve. No, only the way that works for you. And it is sometimes a bit of a search. You have to kind of look. And I think more conversations about the phrase I use is sort of like grief hygiene. Like, how are you keeping your, your body and your mind aware of this? Yeah. I call it the season of grief. You know, it comes and goes. We don't have to grieve right away, you know, or kind of keep it away forever, you know, make space for it and then, you know, get deep into it, but then also make space to come out of it and, you know, also live your life. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you this question because we were giggling about this off mic. What does make space for grief mean? <laughs> right. I, I'm so, this is like my season of taking the therapy words and making them really concrete. So tell me when you say the phrase make space for your grief, what does, what would that look like if someone was doing it? I'll share for me. So let's say, you know, I'm having a day where my grief is very much bubbling up in the, in, you know, 
is making itself very apparent, I would ask myself, okay, what do you need? Like, what would make you feel comforted, nurtured? And for me, you know, I love a good pasta, like a nice spicy pasta dish. And I wouldn't say to myself, well, carbs are bad or you can't eat pasta. I wouldn't say that. I would say, oh, you know what? That sounds so good. Let's go make that. Let's make it from scratch. You know, for me that, you know, I'm going to go buy some nice bucatini and maybe some nice shrimp. I'm going to be like, you know what? I'm going to treat myself because I'm worthy. I'm going to celebrate this moment that, you know, I had an idea for a craving and here I am making time and space. I'm going to make it, sit down, you know, have my nice napkin, a glass of wine, eat it. And I feel, and I'll feel so satisfied and I'll go, wow, like, thank you for feeding me what I wanted. And the next day, you know, that was a day. Next day I may crave something else. You know, your body's always in balance. So it's not okay. like you'll, you'll want to eat one thing for the rest of your life. It's all right. about balance. But whatever craving, you know, some days it's like, oh, you know, I really want something, you know, just like greens, like, you know, just like slow cooked greens. I'll make that for myself. So, you know, craving goes both ways. It's not always. And I think our culture, again, has this idea of like comfort food craving is, quote unquote, unhealthy, not clean. But, you know, I don't really believe in clean food, clean diet, any of that. You know, it, it's just trust your intuition it'll work out. Okay. I love this answer. I'm like, I'm obsessed with this answer. And I feel as though it had like, again, this word craving that you're describing, I think there's a bunch of words that we could put in there, but what's really important is the pause in trauma work. People, particularly people who have childhood trauma, they're often really disconnected from what their instinct is. Mm. might make them feel better because what they've been doing their whole childhood is the mental math of what is possible. So asking, what do you want? What would feel good is not a simple answer to a lot of people who have long-term trauma. No. And then they get to feel, oh my God, I'm failing at this. I'm panicking. And they know many options. Yeah. yeah, They know other people where you say, what do you want to eat? What are you craving? What would feel good to your grief? And they're like Bucatini. And they're like, you know, people with trauma often are, they really genuinely have no idea and they get panicky about even saying it because what if that's inconvenient for you? What Mm -hmm. if you get it? What if it's too expensive? So it's complicated. What we do is we just say, be in that pause, stay with that for a second. Just let see if you can expand 10%, 3%. You're knowing about what it is that your body might want or need. And for my clients, sometimes it's, you know, normally they're quiet and they sit and they're sedentary and they're small. And really what they want to do is scream and yell and run and kick. But again, it's about sort of like meeting the energy and meeting the need of the energy. And I just love the way that you describe it because, you know, a lot of what we do in, in trauma work is like, well, let's try it. Yeah. Like you think you might want some pasta. Let's go get some pasta. Mm-hmm. First thing that's going to happen. We throw it away. Like, or we, you know, give it to somebody else. That's okay. Let's just try. Yeah. And so I mean, then- it's as simple as like, maybe you want to take a bath you know, like do that in the morning. I love baths in the morning. And for my, for people who are not sure. And I think in fresh grief, many of us don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that would feel good. I don't know if that would feel bad. I don't know if that's going to make things worse or better. 
And so if, if they're a little disconnected from your instinct, which is okay, people feel, again, they feel like a failure because, you know, you're supposed to use your intuition and they can't feel their intuition, <laughs> that just reestablishing that relationship. And I feel like food is such a great way because we have two different, well, multiple ways, but one is how does it taste? Right. And then how did your body receive that energy? Like, did it make you irritable? Did it make you tired? Did it keep you up all night? So you get like really immediate feedback with food about whether your guess was right. Did how did the bucatine? Oh, so good. I was in such a good mood after that. Right. Right. Another, yeah, word, you know, therapy word we throw around is like being in your body, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's like being in your body is like the food tastes good or not. It's, you know, it's like kids. They either like go, ew, like move it away or they eat it up, right? So just going back to that trusting part of yourself. I guess I want to know what, what is your grief craving today? You know, I'm pretty still disassociated from the physical food stuff. So food is really tricky for me. I have a history with food that's complicated and I just stopped eating when my mom died, which was three years ago, which was interesting because I stopped eating, but I ended up gaining weight. Mm. And so there was a lot of like, also when you gain weight or lose weight, people feel like they need to make comments about that. And you can be very missed in grief when people say like, you look great or are you okay? When you feel terrible. So (laughs) So it's not usually food for me, but what I do do is I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night with words in my head. And I really love that. And I have learned when the words are there to attend to them, not to assume they're going to be there later because they never are. So I attend to them in the minute and write them down and, you know, as much as I can, and then I leave them and we'll come back to them. And sometimes they become something and sometimes they don't, but I was not really a writer before I had PTSD and, and, and I think it's part of that learning to carry the narrative of your new story is having to tell it at least to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, today, what I get to do is podcast on Wednesdays. I have these conversations, which are always totally invigorating, but I will this evening, I have a medium piece that I've been working on and I will almost like somebody might eat a bowl of ice cream. I will come <laughs> back to that and, yeah. get to finish and get to finish. I was thinking a minute ago when we were talking about these terrible phrases that mean nothing except they're the lingo of grief and loss. How funny it would be to have like a Zoom call where we, you know, played like bingo, you know, yeah, right. are like, oh, holding space, bingo that's the point because we're all really guilty of it. You know, because when you're in the world, those things mean something, but I think what you and I are trying to do is translate for people who are new to the space, being able to sort of say, look, it's, it's just normal stuff. It just means. And it's simple and you know it. I think that's what I want people to get away with it is you don't need an expert to tell you what to do. It's, can you come to a place where, you know, yourself so well that you're living just exactly the way you were meant to and that is it right and that's a beautiful life that you're not living anybody else's life yeah wow I mean and that is the truest of the truths is it bucatini that's your that's your food I I love I I mean you know a pasta with the whole or the sauce I mean like how is that not so good (laughs) 
I love that. I love that. And I think there's going to be some people who are listening who it had not occurred to them to think of making themselves something that is from home or that they know is reliably delicious or their body happens to be craving in the moment that they hadn't connected that as actually attending to their grief. So I just think this conversation, it's going to, it's going to shift some minds and also open some possibilities around being bearing witness for ourselves. There's another phrase. Yeah. Bingo. In the moment, (laughs) being able to say, this is my grief. I understand it. I'm in it and I'm doing it and I, and I can do it right. Like it's not impossible just because we make it a bad word. It's just life. Yeah. And I would say like, make your menu card, you know, when you have that kind of energy, like you were saying, you know, what is my grief craving? It's like being out in the sun, going on a walk with my dog, you know, sleeping in, getting a massage, taking a shower, eating something, you know, fun, eating something very healthy that makes me feel good. You know, it can be all of the above, like cake for breakfast, anything, you know, it's, it's all good. That's what we do for my mom. My mom ate cheesecake for breakfast. She oh, that's such a good breakfast. She, it's right. I mean, she's like, what are you talking about? It's basically a normal breakfast. It's got dairy. It's got, you know, she was very, but she kept a cheesecake in the freezer and cut tiny little. I mean, it's essentially an omelet. So. Yeah, basically. I mean, that yeah. was the argument. It's like, what are you talking about? It just has a little more sugar and people eat donuts. But I don't have a cheesecake in my freezer right now because we finished it. But often when I am doing some grief, with my mom, I will find a piece of cheesecake, put a cheesecake in my freezer, ask other people to eat cheesecake. You know, if you're a cheesecake eater, can you just eat some cheesecake with me? (laughs) And it happens to be a story that many people know that my mom ate cheesecake for breakfast because she's done it since I was a kid. And Mm. it was a, it was a unique mom thing to do back when people were, you know, being forced to only eat healthy things. Grapefruit, right? Grapefruit, cheese. So listen, we have to wrap up, but I want to ask you, like, what's the best way when people are listening and they want to know more about your work, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, it's best to just go on my website. You know, we'll link that below. Sign up for the email newsletter, right? That's how I let people know what events are coming up and social media. Yeah, just, you know, stay in touch. Send me an email. I respond to everyone. So. I love that. Me too. Good luck with everything. Enjoy the rest of your residency. You were so yeah, generous. Thank you. And, so uh, it was just lovely meeting you. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks, Megan. Have a good day. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Enjoy your cheesecake. Thank you. Bye-bye.